Welcome to the Working on Wellbeing podcast by the World Wellbeing Movement. The podcast that allows you to be a fly on the wall during conversations with the world's leading wellbeing experts. In today's episode, we'll explore the concept of psychological safety and we'll find out why it's so critical to drive workplace well-being, diversity, inclusion and belonging, learning, effective teamwork and so much more. And we'll hear tips from the world's leading expert on how to boost psychological safety in the workplace. I'm so honored to introduce today's guest. Um, many of you, when I say the term psychological safety, will automatically think of this incredible woman's name. Um, so I couldn't be more thrilled to welcome um, author of the best-selling book, The Fearless Organization, um, Novartis Professor of Leadership and Management at Harvard Business School and winner of countless awards, Professor Amy Edmondson. You are so welcome. Thank you so much for the invitation. I'm, I'm truly delighted to be here. I mentioned, of course, that when I say the name uh, Amy, Professor Amy Edmondson, there's sort of a name association. People will immediately go, ah, oh, psychological safety. Um, and what's incredible is since your work, I believe it was 1999 when you published your, your first paper, um, the seminal paper on this topic, the phrase psychological safety is now used in a commonplace way in, in workplaces. And actually, even in your book in chapter two, there's a graph and it shows right. a steep rise in the media mentions of psychological safety, um, which is incredible. So I do think many of our listeners will already be familiar with the concept, but some may not. And I think it's important to bring everybody listening to that common understanding. So can I ask you, please, to provide a definition for us? Sure. And, you know, the other reason I think it's important to start that way and start with the definition is that the term has, as you said, become quite familiar, but that doesn't necessarily mean everyone has an accurate definition of the term. And we can talk about that a little more if you wish. But I define psychological safety as a belief that the environment, the climate that you work in is safe for interpersonal risks, like speaking up with an idea, like admitting a mistake or asking for help or pointing out someone else's error. Those are all interpersonally risky or challenging behaviors. Those are the kinds of behaviors that people um, feel an, an, an intuitive risk that they might make people not like them or reject them in some way. And so psychological safety describes an environment where you just believe those risks are absolutely doable. Not that they're easy or fun, but that they're absolutely doable. Thank you. Before I dive into it a bit more, I'd love to understand how you ended up coming to this domain of research. Was there a sort of pivotal moment in time for you that brought you to study psychological safety? Yeah, there absolutely was, and it was a it was a mistake, or or actually a mistake is the wrong word. It was a failure. It was a research failure. So my broad interest coming into my PhD program, and you know making that shift in my career to becoming a researcher, my broad interest was 
learning organizations, right? How can we better help organizations learn and adapt and innovate in a world that keeps changing? But that's what that's what interested me. I knew enough about organizations from the you know the work, the job I had had to know that it's not easy for organizations to sort of to change and learn. And so I, I didn't know exactly how I would study that. But when I was invited in my first year of the PhD program, to join a team of medical researchers looking at medication errors and the adverse drug events that sometimes happen as a result, I I agreed for two reasons. One, I needed to do something. You need to do research and you need to learn how to do research. Um, and this seemed like a, a project that was sort of already set up and I could become part of the team and learn a lot. Um, but the other important reason was I'd always seen a connection between error and learning as if yeah. that's not a unique thought, right? Everybody, everybody kind of knows the connection between error and learning. And so I thought it's not entirely unrelated. In fact, it's quite closely related to my core interests. So, so that's it. I, I really wanted to show in, I wanted to be able to show with the data available to me in that study that better teamwork was associated with lower error rates or fewer errors and unfortunately, what the data seemed to suggest once I had it right in front of me and was analyzing it was, yes, there was a significant correlation, but no, it was in the wrong direction. In other words, the data suggested that better teams, according to a validated team survey diagnostic instrument, were having had higher error rates, right? That doesn't make sense, or at least it didn't seem to make sense to me. And I I thought and thought, and it occurred to me, you know, suddenly, sort of a blinding flash, that maybe the better teams were more able and willing to talk about the errors that did happen, right? That they didn't, they didn't have that, they didn't have as much of the natural human desire to uh, not talk about them or to be afraid that if you talk about them, you'll get punished in some, in some way, which of course is very human and very normal in organizations. So that having that insight was a far cry from proving it. And that's what the, the next, next few years were about was sort of proving the possibility that different groups within the same organizational settings, and I did this in healthcare and I've done this in in, in manufacturing organizations and other, other organizations, that different groups, you know, within the same organizational culture can have wildly different interpersonal climates. Yes. And turns out that that's demonstrably true, that groups can vary. And I did it wasn't until several years later that I called this psychological safety. But teams can vary in psychological safety, and that variance is predictive of team learning behaviors and team performance. And that now has been shown in study after study uh, to be the case. So the discovery or the interest in psychological safety was quite by accident. Um, but once once seen, you know, yes. it couldn't be unseen and it and it became something that seemed worthy of follow up. And, you know, for me, this is so important. Um, and I suppose, Amy, in my own background, I'm, you know, currently leading the World Wellbeing Movement and hosting obviously our podcast. But I, I previously have um, a corporate career and I've worked in various leadership positions and creating that environment where we used to talk about uh, fail smart. Um, and what we mean by fail smart is, you know, 
fail quickly, but take the learnings from those failures so that you can get closer to doing it right the next time. And I think, you know, when I read your work, I think about as children, we're afraid to get in trouble. So if we do something wrong, we'll sweep it under the carpet. And we take those exactly. learned behaviors into the workplace. Um, so, but it's difficult. It's difficult to be honest. Nobody likes to fail. And it's really difficult to say, oh, my bad, I didn't do this right, it went wrong. So, so it's not an easy thing. I'd love to hear from you a little bit more about the benefits of creating that environment of psychological safety. And you've already talked about some of the challenges in the absence of psychological safety. But if you could elaborate on that, it would be fantastic. Yeah, I think, you know, in the in the absence of psychological safety, what happens is, if, especially if you're a team leader or project manager or a, a branch leader of some kind, you know, bank branch or something, restaurant, in a chain, um, in the absence of psychological safety, you won't be hearing what's really going on. Right? So you won't be hearing the bad news. You'll only be hearing the the sort of the the good news, the the reports of all that's going well. So you're not actually able to do your job as well as you otherwise would because you don't have all the data. Um, and and in the presence of psychological safety, there's now research that shows a variety of 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 desired outcomes, you know, including just team performance, right? And that that was famously shown um, in you know in a study that got a lot of attention at Google called Project Aristotle, studied 180 teams and found that the most effective predictor of team performance, as Google, was psychological safety. Yeah, again, at the team level, um, you have um, some research that shows, in fact, better better um, um, lower burnout um, you know in, in in at least one sort of better medical outcomes again because people are more able to catch and correct so it, you could put all of this under the bucket of of learning there's more there's more learning there's more sharing of information and as a result given how dependent we are on information and knowledge as a result you have better performance yeah. And you talk about burnout, of course, you know, we're seeing increasing rates of, of burnout. Um, I would yeah. have to understand more about the links, be what research tells us about the impact of psychological safety on our well-being, on our mental health. Yeah, so I, I think that's a relatively new field of inquiry because it's become so very important recently. So I can't um, I can't cite oodles of studies, but it, it's certainly consistent with with what we know. Um, and there at least are a couple of studies I'm aware of that, that link psychological safety to lower burnout. And it makes sense, right? Because not having psychological safety is stressful. I mean, it's kind of normal. But it's stressful, normal, because you're you um, you're in this state of of sort of anxiety about the things you see, and you're trying to think, you know, can I say that? Can I speak up about that? You find various workarounds because you have you're conscientious, you know, and you feel you can't quite speak up about that thing, but you can you work around it, and maybe there's a one-on-one -on -one meeting later where you can bring something up. All of that takes time and effort and 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 takes its toll on on well-being right so with psychological safety i'm not saying psychological safety is descriptive of a sort of easy comfortable environment it isn't yeah. but it at least takes you away from that second guessing which i think yeah. is a 
um, is a stressful thing to, um, it, it, you know, to, to, to live through. I mean, it really, really is. And this concept of an absence of fear, it sounds so much simpler than it is. And we're living in a very unique time. Um, one of the fears, one of the employee fears that you talk about a bit in the book is is the, the basic fear of losing your job. Um, and in today's world, that's a very, very real fear. Over the sure. past year, we've seen numerous announcements of layoffs from some of the biggest companies across the globe at a time when cost of living is rising. I would love to hear your advice um, to leaders and to employees on, you know, how to nurture psychological safety during this time. Yeah, it's it's um, you know I I wrote a, a piece a few years ago um, in the after right you know soon after the fearless organization came out because I realized sometimes people will have this reaction to like fearless that that sounds like reckless or, you know, or it's or unrealistic for a human to be without fear. And that's right. And so I wrote this little article um, for Duke magazine on on um, productive fear versus counterproductive fear or unproductive fear, just to try to be super clear about this. And it is, um, you know, especially this was sort of in the time of, of the peak of covid you know, it is productive to be afraid of that virus, right? You should be afraid of it. Um, it is productive to be afraid of, you know, sort of losing your job and trying to do, a, you know, trying to do a good job as as a result. Now, you don't always have control. In fact, more often than not, you don't have very high level of control over who is laid off and who isn't. But we'll come back to that. But, um, you know, it's productive to be afraid of the competitors, you know, sort of, stealing market share from you right because these are all these are all fears the reason why the main reason why they're productive is that they're discussable right? there there's nothing embarrassing or shameful about going yeah this is a this is a real worry that we have you could talk about it and you can team up to mitigate the negative effects of those frightening things on 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 you and your team whereas the interpersonal fear i would argue is almost never productive right because interpersonal fear leaves you alone it leaves you sort of unable to talk about it by its very nature and 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 so you are second guessing yourself you're wondering whether it's okay to say something or to ask for help or this or that so it's it just and in a in an uncertain, complex, you know, interdependent world, that leaves you vulnerable to not getting the information you need, not getting support you need, not sharing uh, the important things that you see um, with colleagues to help to help them and to help the projects and and the work go well. So, the, I you know, there's no easy answer to how do we sort of um, as. W. Edwards Deming said, drive fear out of the organization. But when we work together on it, it really is doable, right? It's powerful, right? If it's is so long as we do our very best not to be um, to remind ourselves that each other are, are not are not what we should be afraid of. You know, we should be afraid of these external forces. And in good organizations, now I know they're not all good, but in good organizations, uh, managers go out of their way to be thoughtful. If there are to be layoffs, which is you know never never a happy outcome, to be thoughtful about um, who and how and 
you know, under what conditions those layoffs will occur. And the last thing they would do would be lay off the people who are taking interpersonal risks, like like uh, speaking up with a concern, I mean, or, or a dissenting view. Those are the those are the people we need, you know, in uncertain times. I think that's a really important point to to highlight that it's a positive to speak up. It's, it's a positive. positive. Yeah. Yeah. And managers need to make sure they are clear about yeah. the fact that it's a positive, but they, they need to go out of their way to say, these are challenging times and we don't know what will happen. Um, and we need to hear from you more than ever. And, and those who are quiet are, um, at, at, at greater risk than those who are sort of leaning in to try to, to solve the problems we have. Yeah. And you give a couple of really good examples in the book of disasters, really, that could have been avoided. Um, the uh, nuclear uh, power plant in, in in Japan and also the um, the one of the I think it was the Challenger uh, explosion with NASA. Do you want to uh, talk Columbia, about actually, Sorry. but Challenger <laughs> counts, too. OK, <laughs> it's another story that I do sometimes talk about, but I, not as much in this book. Of course, we've seen a very, very radical change to the workplace in the past few years, particularly yes. post-pandemic. So we're now in a situation where a lot of teams are geographically um, disparate. So I might be working in a London office or a Dublin office, and I'm going to have uh, fellow teammates in Mumbai, in Singapore, in San Francisco. My manager might be in a completely different time zone. Even if yep. we're in the same location, chances are at least some of your colleagues are working remotely and most are working hybrid. Is it more challenging to create an environment of psychological safety in this sort of dispersed world that we're now living in? I think the answer is yes, it is. Now, as I say that, I think um, data are likely being collected as we speak, you know, to, to be able to talk about this more specifically and precisely. Um, but my my qualitative observation, and I think that of many others as well over the last couple of years, is that um, with greater distance or more, more virtual relationships at work, um, psychological safety does take a hit because you, you're missing some of the, the sort of natural and subtle cues that w I'm interested in what you have to say, like I'll make eye contact with you or I'll lean in in ways that are quite hard to see on the screen. And even even more, it's the the um, the serendipitous interactions that don't happen, right? I see you in the hallway and I say, oh, you know, there's been something I've been meaning to ask you, but it would feel, it often does feel quite awkward to kind of you know, send you a message to say, could we set up a Zoom call or Teams call or, you know, WebEx call? And, and you know, it's it, like it doesn't feel worthy of that kind of structure and organization. So I sort of let it go. So we're, we're losing some of the, the spontaneous connectedness that, that keeps us feeling um, both connected to each other and more able to just lean in and speak up about things that we wonder about and worry about or ideas that we might have that might lead toward an innovation uh, downstream. So I think this is something, I'm not saying it's, you know, don't do it. I'm saying, let's do it thoughtfully, meaning don't do remote work. Let's do it thoughtfully. Let's do it carefully. Let's figure out 
more than anything else, not what people need, which is super important and the and the core idea of your podcast, but but what the work needs, right? Yes. What the work needs from us to be done really, really well and how we're going to organize that and how we're going to do that. And I think that feeds back into well-being because I think most people, maybe everybody, wants to be wants to matter, right? We want to be doing something that matters to the world, you know, whether it's the, you know, contributing to the production of products and services that make people's lives better, or whether it's, you know, doing healthcare that literally um, affects health um, or, or um, writing, you know, entertaining programming. I mean, you know, that we, we want to think that what we do matters. It doesn't just land out there with a thud. No, absolutely. And everything you're saying really resonates and it resonates with what I've seen firsthand in the workplace and the research I'm I'm reading as well. Um, and, you know, when you talk about speaking up, speaking up is hard enough. And if you're in the room physically, you might be able to pluck up the right. courage to say, gosh, I disagree. I, I don't think right. that's a good idea. But to then have to, as you say, either put it in an email, that's very tough. How do I word it with email? You're missing all of those body language cues, all of those tone of voice cues. And it's so ripe for misinterpretation. Um, and as you say, scheduling a, a Zoom call or a Teams call to say, I disagree is a bit difficult. Um, and certainly all the research we're seeing sort of indicates that for multiple reasons, hybrid working really is the way forward because, of course, our social connections are key. Flexibility is key. Right. But so are social connections. Yeah, I think we have we um, because we were able during the pandemic when when if you had a job that allowed that and was conducive to working from home, we were able to do it like we pulled it off. Um, that doesn't mean that's an ideal way to work, right? either from a mental health perspective or from a quality of work perspective. It's it's um, it's much like, um, you know, we were in lifeboats. Um and we got, you know, we we lived through the the shipwreck. But it's not to say you want to spend the rest of your life in a lifeboat. It it doesn't, you know, it's it's not optimal. I I hear you. I hear you. Um, I'd love to read a quick quote from your book, if I may. Um, Go I'll, for just, it. I'll just find the page. But you talk about um, uh, psychological safety as being the missing ingredient to achieving diversity, inclusion, and belonging. And of course. It's been proven that inclusion and belonging are key drivers of workplace well-being and, and that stands to reason. So the quote, which I thought was really, really interesting, you said psychological safety may be playing an especially crucial role for minorities in creating engagement and, fe and a feeling of being valued at work. Can you talk more about how psychological safety can really help drive diversity, inclusion and belonging? Well, first of all, I do want to underline the word may, right? Because this is this is theoretical, speculative work rather than data-driven um findings at this at this point. Although I think we that's another topic for which data are being collected, not not by me, but by by others. But um so let let's when we think about um the sort of the progression from diversity to inclusion to belonging. Um, where diversity means we have an arguably, objectively more diverse workforce 
than say before, or, you know, we can, we can sort of point to people from different identity groups being hired. Um, That's a kind of, um, well, obviously a minimum standard. And then to get to inclusion, you really are asking yourselves the question of yes. And are the, the diverse groups that we have hired equally included in the decision-making that matters, you know, in the roles that matter, right? Is there, is there, uh, and this is a, somewhat subjective and somewhat objective right we can we can point to it and to let's say you go from diversity to inclusion a higher standard of inclusion that's a little bit dependent on psychological safety because it's one thing to be around the table it's another to believe sincerely that your voice is welcome right that people like me have a say around here whether that be women or people of color or people from different countries that are less well represented in your organization etc right so so it's a lot easier to offer your unique perspective if there's an environment of psychological safety. Now, when we shift even further to the topic of belonging, now we're asking the question, uh, does does everyone feel equally like I belong here? People like me are perfectly welcome, have a perfect right to be here in this workforce. And that's an entirely subjective standard and it's not it's not so easy um, to to point to the objective criteria by which you'd measure that Um, and that i would argue is even more dependent on psychological safety because when you don't have the experience of 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 psychological safety again permission for candor at work um, then that feeling of belonging that others might enjoy just naturally um, is is not yours Thank you. And I I couldn't agree more, obviously. Um, And when I think about not having psychological safety, for me, that means I don't have the confidence. I don't have the confidence, you know, as you say, to share your view, to share your expertise, to shine maybe in some ways. And how on earth can you get promoted if you can't shine? So it, it really stands to reason. And Hopefully we'll see a lot more research in this area as we move forward. But I I want to get to one of my favorite parts of your book, because a lot of the listeners of this podcast are business leaders who really want to improve. You know, actually, something we tend not to get enough training on is how to be effective people managers. You know, Mm, people mm. are diverse. People have different personalities. There's a lot to manage. Um, And I think every manager would agree that they'd love more training. And what I love about this book in chapter seven, for anybody who's interested, (laughs) is you lay out a leader's toolkit to explain how leaders can create that environment of psychological safety. Would you be able to give a summary of some of the the key tips there, please? So the key tips, I, I, you know, I think of it as uh, table setting or stage setting, you know, real time action and responses to things that happen and in the in the stage setting um, one thing that maybe i don't emphasize enough but i think when you uh, keep coming back to the purpose of the team you know the the why it matters why the work we do matters even when you think it's utterly obvious like patient care right it's it turns out that it still matters. It's very powerful and enabling to just remind people that the work we do matters, they matter, right? But but uh, more importantly, so that's kind of reminding reminding of purpose and and 
bringing us back, reminding to what really matters. But the part of stage setting that I think is so important is framing the work. And nearly all work today has some degree of uncertainty or complexity or novelty. And just calling attention to that, even, again, though you think it's obvious, right? Gee, we've never done a project like this before. You know, it's an innovation project. Saying it aloud sets the rationale for why it actually makes sense that you want to hear from other people, right? If, if, if you are inadvertently in, in, implying that you have all the answers, why would you actually even be interested in what anyone else has to say, right? And you may not know that you're inadvertently implying that, but if you don't override it explicitly, like, I might miss something, I need to hear from you, statements like that are just so, so powerful. And then the second bit, which is pretty easy to explain, is just ask good questions, right? Invite voice. Like you might have set the stage beautifully, but there still can be a hesitation for people to just speak up. But, you know, if if you ask, as you're doing throughout this time together, you're asking me questions. And even if I felt inclined to kind of hold back, I can't. I have to. You know, it's it's a it's a human um, requirement to answer a question. So I answer, right? And you're hearing my voice and hopefully honest voice um, because you've made it clear that you really do value that. And third, how do you respond? You know, when someone disagrees with you or asks for help or brings bad news. And I describe something I call a productive response, which is appreciative and forward-looking, you know, not fake nice or, or, um, you know, fake anything, but just genuinely thank you for that clear line of sight, right? That's how can I help? So it's, you know, it's it's um, honestly appreciative of the sense of the, the little bits of courage that were involved in your um, in your your team members speaking up. And then always, you know, forward looking, like, where do we go from here? How can I help? I think it's it's really important advice and thank you. And I think anybody who has been in a people manager position, we've all made mistakes. Um, and certainly when I first became a people manager, you think you're supposed to know everything. And right. you think that somehow you're failing if you go, oh, gosh, I don't know the answer. Does anybody know? But actually, the whole point is the reason you have a team is you've assembled people whose skill set and expertise complements yours. And that's why you want to draw on their expertise and supplement your own. You're responsible for the questions, not the answers. You know, you're responsible for creating the conditions whereby people can coordinate to do great work, not, you know, controlling and commanding and, and you know, having having all the knowledge that's needed. As you say, if you've done a good job selecting a team or been given a good team, um, their expertise is 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 really relevant and and that's you know that's that's why you're there to you're the process architect not the not the um provider of answers now you talked earlier about um diversity inclusion particularly belonging being subjective and difficult to measure but it strikes me that psychological safety is quite difficult to measure and in <laughs> some ways how do you measure silence how do you even notice silence how yeah. do you identify the people who aren't speaking up is there a way if business leaders read chapter seven and start implementing yeah. your advice, how do they track progress? How do they see improvement? Well, I guess there's a formal and an informal answer to that. And the formal answer is there is a measure and it's publicly available, um, a, a seven item survey 
that I developed for that 1999 paper that's a, a quite a robust measure. And you can find it at fearlessorganization.org, I think, or maybe it's .com, I'm not sure. But it's a free measure that, you know, you can use with your team and, you know, you could track it. And I, I, I tend to think of it as a useful tool you know, not for getting the answer, but for provoking discussion. Um, but but in the absence of that more formal uh, measure, there is the self-discipline of asking yourself, you know, what is the ratio of the sort of good news to bad that I'm hearing or the successes to failures or the all's well versus requests for help? And, you know, if you're a little too, you know, if what you're hearing is a little too rosy, and you're working in an uncertain, complex, novel environment, the chances are you're not, there's, there are things you're not hearing. Right? So just that, that sort of self-discipline to just reflect on the ratio. And I'm not saying there's a right answer for what the ratio should be, but that um, train yourself to listen for the dog that didn't bark, as the famous Sherlock Holmes story um, puts it, right? It's just, it's, because it, as you say, it's, it's, um, it's so much harder to notice things that aren't happening. Yes. Um, but remind yourself of the things that ought to be happening. Yeah, I love the that. bumps in the road. The, the the dog that didn't bark. I love that. <laughs> I'll have to look up that Sherlock Holmes uh, Holmes <laughs> reference. Um, so when it comes to workplace well-being and indeed to creating an environment of psychological safety, there's so many factors that are such a part of of the workplace that they can either either boost psychological safety or or destroy it. Um, and one of those, I think, is the performance re- review process. Now, this is a bit of a loaded question because it is a personal bugbear of mine. Um, but I would love to know what changes you would like to see within that performance review process to really boost psychological safety. You know, there's there is an implicit idea baked into most performance review processes that um, that the job of the manager is to evaluate the performance of the of the employee and that they are able to do that right that they have omniscience or or you know full knowledge about whether or not and to what degree the the employee's performance was was up to expectations. It's a faulty assumption, right? Because they don't have omniscience. They have a partial view of what happened. They have their perspective on what happened. But the employee also has a valid and important and valuable perspective on what happened. So I am a huge fan of a, of a book on this topic. I just recommend so highly called Get Rid of the Performance Review by UCLA professor Sam Culbert. It's um, the the title is um, you know more more strident than than he really means. What what he says is you got to get rid of the broken assumptions embedded in the performance review that creates these very faulty dynamics and and basically makes the whole activity quite ineffective at at doing what it's supposed to do, which is to, you know, enable good performance. And he says, you've got to replace the performance review with, and he uses this wonderful term, a performance preview, where both 
metaphorically, and in some cases, literally, we sit on the same side of the table looking forward, right? We, the, the, the manager and the subordinate look forward at what has to happen this year. Now, I, we can use data and experience from last year to inform this conversation. In fact, I think we should, um, we should do that. But the, there is a clear understanding of a mutual responsibility that we both own for ensuring great work next year. So I have, uh, let's say I'm your manager, I have some ideas about what I need from you, but I also need you to tell me what you need from me to be able to deliver on this very challenging assignment, right? And and by the way, if things don't go well, it's at least as much my responsibility as yours because I'm, I'm the manager, right? They pay me more than they pay you. It's my job to help you be effective. So what's really wrong with the performance review process in most organizations is that it's it's based on a sort of uh, a set of faulty assumptions um, that inevitably lead to bad outcomes that are not intended by anyone. Yeah. And how you describe that really does take the fear out of it, actually, um, which is so important. Just really having that manager support, knowing that your manager has your back. That's exactly the type of conversation which will help me, to be honest, and it will help me to say, well, do you know what? I'm struggling with this. Have you any advice? Um, which is fantastic. One of the things I'd also love to see with the performance review process is um, it bugs me when I see maybe a brilliant salesperson get promoted because they've overachieved all their targets. But in doing so, they've been belittling their colleagues and they've been making the types of comments yeah. which will absolutely destroy psychological safety. Because if yeah. I'm struggling with my confidence and if one of my colleagues is belittling me, taking credit for my work, I'm going to shrink a little bit more. Um, so in a previous company I worked for, uh, they had the uh, the CEO coined the term decency quotient, um, So, which I love. Decency quotient is all about um, how we treat others. Do we treat others with yes. respect? Um, and it can also be about do we do well by doing good? Do we, you know, use our volunteer days? There's so much to this concept of decency quotient. But what I loved was in that performance review process, that came into the conversation. So it wasn't just did Bob hit all his sales targets, but rather in doing so, did Bob display decency? Um, and right. I feel like there's changes like this that could be made that will also help, um, yes. you know, psychological safety thrive. I mean, good performance in in well-run organizations is that combination of decency and sort of, you know, whatever objective metrics of of output. But but in order for this, you know, better learning-oriented, more effective style of management to take hold, the man, a manager has to truly want to help yes. the subordinate. You have to want to help the subordinate more than you want to judge and feel superior to like it and that's often a, a, an internal shift that you can't assume is present right so to be a people manager you have to be in that role because you want to help yes. others like do well and it's not about you right it's it's about them but if your primary goal is to lord your power over others or to judge others um, you probably won't do as good a job in that role. Yeah, so true. Um, 
Amy, I'd love to go into what I like to call the rapid fire round. (laughs) So what do you do um, to work on your well-being on a daily Uh basis, daily or weekly basis? Well, I, I think the easiest answer, and it's the, it's a true answer, is I really do try to get enough sleep. I know, I mean, some people in my environment boast about how little sleep they get. I mean, I'm I'm the opposite. I I I really need sleep. I think it's without it, I don't think as clearly. Um, I don't feel as good. So sleep matters to me, and and exercise does as well. And I'm not saying I'm out there running marathons. I'm not, but I do like to run, and I do like the feeling of, you know, just getting out there and and uh, working a little harder at, at something um, physical. And of course, all, all the science tells us to get out in nature, but then we get so overwhelmed with workloads that we leave that good advice at the door. So it's so important to remember that. And I also want to pick up on the busyness, busyness status that you brought up. We need to overcome this. Um, yes. Boasting about I'm busier than you are is not going to help society in any way. So, no. you know, isn't it great to start boasting about I got a full eight, nine hours sleep last <laughs> night, you know? Right, right. Yeah. And and people, you know, it's the new, oh, how are you? I mean, you know exactly what the answer is going to be. Busy. Yes. And yeah. I'm guilty. Guilty is charged. And, and you know, busyness, I, I think busyness isn't something to be proud of even though you know again I'm, i get i do um, live in a glass house here but it's it's often that you're not prioritizing well enough right not picking and choosing the things where either you can really add value or you really get joy or meaning and and you know doing your your very best to say no which is an act of kindness really you know to yourself and others because if you do if you say yes and then you do them with resentment that's no good and so it's it's trying to trying to um think about the 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 best uh, use of your time the, the power of saying no. Uh, we had uh, Dr. Kelly Harding on a previous episode and Kelly and I bonded over the fact that we realized we were both people pleasers and we're both trying to become reformed people pleasers. So we're setting <laughs> up informally PPA, People Pleasers Anonymous, to remind oh, all of us great. to start saying no. Not an official thing, I should say, but yeah. <laughs> we should all start Careful, it may no. become official very soon. <laughs> it may. We need badges and everything. <laughs> um, the, the next question I have for you. You had a a really interesting graph showing, again, I mentioned at the beginning, the increase in the media mentions of psychological safety over a period of 25 years. Now, if you could hop into a time machine and you could travel 25 years in the future, what is the change that you would like to see? Wow. Wow. That's a good question. Well, first of all, I mean, you're, you're right. I do publish that graph and that's before the book even came out. So the, the, and I haven't done that analysis recently, but the chances are it's gone way up. Although I, I think 25 years in the future, I'd like to see it go way down because it becomes just a given. It's like talking about, um, you know, breathing. You don't, you don't need to talk about breathing uh, very often because you have to breathe, right? So if, you know, if it became sort of commonplace that everybody understood that work environments need to feel like you have permission for candor, then we wouldn't see lots and lots of articles about it because you wouldn't need to. What a brilliant answer. Um, 
And and on that note, Amy, I just want to say a huge thank you. I have thoroughly enjoyed this conversation. I've learned so much and I think you've given such brilliant advice to all of our listeners. You're very kind. Thank you for having me. Of course.